There's an awful lot more people when you look this direction. Um, uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, just before we, we turn to God's Word, I'd like to say thank you to Robin. I, I find myself in the, the position these last number of years of thanking people who are not here, and Robin's not here, but thank you to Robin for his invitation to be here and his kindness in allowing me to be here. Also to, to Andrew for his help in putting the service together this evening. I came across a story just this week. It's about the Scottish Covenanters as they met for worship out on the heather of the Glen. It wasn't always safe for them to meet due to the English enemy. And, and what they used to do was to spread the white communion cloth out on the heather and then they would post lookouts to give a warning if there was any danger. And towards the end of one such service, the call came that the English were approaching. And just before the meeting broke up, the minister said the following to the people. He said this, we may never meet again in this life, but I want you to know this. You will never be alone. Wherever there is one of you, Christ will be the second. Wherever there are two of you, Christ will be the third. And whatever happens, you will never be lost for company. And this evening, Jesus is with us. And we turn to his word. Our main thoughts for this evening are are going to be from Psalm 130, but I'd I'd like to read a couple of other passages first because we'll refer to them as we go along. So first of all, we're going to turn in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 6, and then we'll read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 7 as well. So Leviticus chapter 6, and then Hebrews chapter 7 if you'd like to find them. Leviticus chapter 6, reading from verse 8 to verse 13, and this is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, And he shall put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And then we turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 23 and through to verse 28. Speaking again of the sacrifices in the temple, and this time comparing them with Jesus. This is God's word. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And we end our reading at verse 28. Our second reading is Psalm 130, so we're going to read the whole Psalm, verses 1 to verse 8, Psalm 130. And again, this is God's word. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And we end our reading at verse 8. Just before we think a little bit more about the psalm, can we bow together in prayer? Let's pray. And grace, sweet grace celestial, shall all its love display in David's royal fountain purge every sin away our father we thank you that you've brought us together in the name of jesus our savior and our friend and as we turn to your word now we ask as others have asked you before that we would see jesus open our hearts to the wonder of his love to the depth of his forgiveness and to the purity of his life which Because of his grace, he grants to all of those who come to him through faith. Amen. I'm going to try and speak and make this thing work at the same time. So if this doesn't work, just turn it off. (laughs) Uh, Psalm 130 is one of 15 psalms. Uh, They're psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. And they were 15 psalms sung by the Hebrew pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem every year for those annual festivals. Festivals which we might know as Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And this evening I'd like us to pull on our walking boots. And I'd like us to travel with some of these pilgrims for a while. And with one pilgrim in particular, the, the person who wrote the psalm. And as we climb the hills around Jerusalem, every verse will be like a step And with every verse, we will climb higher, and we will climb higher until we reach the top. And as we do, I hope we'll be able to see something like this. I hope you'll be able to see the smoke rising there above the temple and above the altar, and then drifting out over the city. And as we see it, as we approach Jerusalem and see the smoke, we're reminded of the words that we read in Leviticus chapter 6. And the fire on the altar 
shall be kept burning. There's something else that we need to do as we travel this evening, and that's to watch out for a particular verse in the psalm, because that's going to be the high point as we approach this city and climb the hill. That verse will be the high point of the most important part of the psalm. So as we watch, as we go, watch out for that most important verse, and watch out for the smoke which rises above the city. And to help guide our thinking through the psalm this evening, I'd like to use some words and phrases from the psalm which will be like steps along the way. And the words, the words are these. We begin in the depths of verse 1. And there in the depths of verse 1, we're going to hear a cry. And there in the depths, we're going to wonder something. We're going to wonder if it's possible to stand. Can people like you and me Are we able to stand in the presence of God? The next words are forgiveness and fear. And then we're going to wait and we'll watch. And as we do that, we'll hope. And we'll wait and we'll watch and we'll hope for the morning and for the morning light. And then finally, as we see the light of a new morning, we'll finish our journey with a different kind of cry, which is really a song And it's a song of love and a song of redemption. So those are our steps along the way for this evening. And we're going to begin with verse 1 and with step 1. And in verse 1, we meet a man who's in the depths. We don't really know who he is. We don't know what he's done. But we do know where he's going. And we do know why he's going there. Here is someone who has begun to understand the great distance between where he is and where God is. And he sets out for Jerusalem because he knows that he should find something there. Because God told Moses to keep the fires burning on the altar. And as we hear of these depths, we need to realize something. It tells us that this journey is not simply one which begins at the foot of a mountain. This is one that begins in a much deeper and a much darker place than that. Because very often in the Bible, the idea of the depths is a metaphor for trouble. And especially the kind of trouble which is related to our guilt, our pain, or our separation from God. And that's where our journey begins this evening. In those deep, deep places of the human heart. If you've ever caught a glimpse of the human heart, then you'll know that the gap between us and God is not one that we can overcome. You and I are powerless to do that. But we remember that there are fires burning in Jerusalem as we go. And as the pilgrim saw the darkness and the depths that he was in, he began to cry, and here's our next word. And he cries out, and he cries out to the only one who can do something for him. Verse 1, out of the depths... I cry to you, O Lord. And you'll notice his desperation in verse 2. O Lord, he says, hear my voice. It's almost as if he's saying, in the middle of whatever he has done, it's as if he's saying, Lord, I've got myself so deep into this mess, and I've got myself so far from you, I wonder, is it possible that you can hear me at all? It's one of those cries from the difficult and lonely places of life the places that perhaps only we know about. But you can see something, you can see in verse 1 and verse 2, that he appeals to the Lord in verse 1, and then he appeals to the Lord again in verse 2. And what he really means is this. 
He appeals, first of all, to the Lord, who is both the sovereign and almighty God, who holds life and death in his hands. He also then appeals to the Lord, who is the covenant-keeping and promise-keeping God. And what he really means is this. Here is the Lord who has the power to rescue him, and the God who is absolutely committed to his promise to keep his people. What he's doing is he's appealing to the God who told Moses to keep those fires burning on the altar in Jerusalem. He's also appealing to the God that Israel knew throughout their national history and who who they knew from Egypt. Here's the God who said to them in Exodus, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and see how I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. And that's the kind of God he's talking about. And we see that even though God is so far away and God is so immensely holy, here is the God who comes near to us. And we see that the fires are still burning on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But the writer also appeals and cries out to this kind of God, because without this kind of God, who could stand? Here's the next word. Who among us could stand? And the answer really is very clear. Without this kind of God, none of us could stand. Verse 3, O O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Because if God was to keep a record of your life or my life, then not even the most godly of us could stand, and the whole thing seems awful. And yet also at this point, on this step and with this word, the good news begins to break in. Because whenever God acts, instead of acting to keep a record of sin, God acts to keep his people. Look at the word if. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. But that's not what God does. Instead, he brings forgiveness. And you and I remember again that there are fires burning on the altar in Jerusalem as we go along. I've come to realize that there's always a line in nearly every talk I've done that's, should I say it or should I not? Here's one of them. I don't know the depths of your heart. And you should be very glad that you don't know the depths of my heart. But however deep and however dark they are, whenever we confess our sins, God forgives us. And he forgets every one of them. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. I will remember their sins no more. And without that kind of God, without that kind of promise, who could stand? And here in these first four verses of this psalm, we're moving from the depths of our own hearts to the height and to the love of God's forgiveness. And the next words then come to us, forgiveness and fear. Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I don't know if it strikes you as an odd thing or a strange thing that God's forgiveness and fear go together. But God's forgiveness is is supposed to provoke fear and awe. And one of the reasons is because God has every right to pronounce judgment, but he brings to us absolution instead. And as the writer thinks on forgiveness, he stands in awe on this journey that he's on. And it's worth perhaps reflecting on this just for a moment. 
Because sometimes we talk about forgiveness as if it's easy. It's not. There's a lot of talk about forgiveness, but there are some terrible things that have happened. And forgiveness is just not easy. It's not even easy to forgive the people we know. And it's not even easy to forgive them the small things. But whenever God sought to forgive us, it sent Jesus to the cross. And there on the cross, the legions of Rome and the legions of hell did their worst. They did their very worst because forgiveness is for the worst of people. And whenever the very worst of people encounter the church and encounter the good news we call the gospel, what they find is a story of love and forgiveness. And what they find is a people who have been carried away by the love which God has shown to them. And as this writer thinks about his forgiveness, he stands in awe and he remembers these fires that are burning in Jerusalem. Then we see a little shift in his thinking. These first verses mainly have been full of his cries and his questions. Lord, hear my cry. Lord, who could stand? Lord, I'm in the depths. But now with verses 5 and 6, we, we find a new sense of calm and a new set of words. And here are the new words. We're going to watch and we're going to wait and we're going to hope. Let's read verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And this poet, he begins to watch and wait, and it brings hope. And with his watching and with his waiting, we need to think again about that most important verse. Because we're getting closer to Jerusalem now, and it's all coming into view. And there's a sense of expectation as we go along. Here is a man, and he's out of the depths, and he's watching And he's waiting, but we need to ask, what's he waiting for? What is this hope that he has? Well, let me put it this way. I'm conscious that this might be recorded, and I'm going to say that mum, whenever she taught the school choir, I had to mime. I can't sing. Um, But there's a version of this psalm, and it's sung by the Scottish Philharmonic Singers. And the way they sing it, it helps to explain the meaning of the psalm. And when they sing, verse 1 begins with the deep bass notes of the organ and the bass male voices, and they're right down in the depths. And then step by step, as they sing it, the tenors and the altos, they raise the tones until as they sing out these verses, verses 5 and 6, about watching and waiting, the soprano voices sing out the high desk cant, and they sing like this because something is going to happen. The poet is watching and waiting because something is going to happen. He's watching and waiting because God told Moses to keep the fires burning on the altar. And there's hope instead of despair. And what we learn is this. We learn that the writer is watching and he's waiting for the morning. Verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And as we journey on, as we watch for the morning, we really have reached the high point of the psalm, the high point along the journey, because we're approaching the temple courts. And as we do that, we begin to realize that with every step, there has been an underlying melody. We realize that someone has been walking with us, and someone is waiting for us in Jerusalem. 
where those fires are burning. And so we need to ask why the morning is so important. And at the most basic level, we all know that the morning can be thought of as some kind of new beginning. And at the most basic level, we can say that this psalm gives us the picture of the morning as a new beginning, and that's, that's fine. But we don't gather together in a place like this just for a little bit of help or a little bit of encouragement along the way. There's lots of places that we can go to for that. We gather together because something has already happened. And that something has been with us every step of the way from verse 1. And I wonder if you can hear those footsteps. I wonder if you can hear that melody. Because it's God himself who has given us these words to sing. And it was God who caused the writer to see the depths that he was in. It was God who authored his cry. It was God who lifted his eyes up towards forgiveness and gave him a place to stand. All of it was God's activity, every little bit of it. And it's God for whom the writer is waiting. It's God in whom he puts his hope. And it's God who would meet the writer at the beginning of the day in the temple courts on Mount Zion because there was something about the morning and the evening that God had woven into the fabric of the nation of Israel. And the book of Numbers tells us what it was. Numbers chapter 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer me at its appointed time. Two male lambs, a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And every morning and every evening something happened at the temple. There was a sacrifice for the sins of the day and there was a sacrifice for the sins of the the night. And during the time of Jesus what happened was this. Every morning before dawn the priests in the temple cast lots to decide the various jobs for the day. The altar was cleaned And it was cleared and it was filled with fresh wood and the ashes were were carried away. And then one of the priests climbed up to a high point in the temple to watch for the morning. He was the watchman. And as he looked out over Jerusalem and as the sun began to rise, the priest would shout this. He would shout, the morning shineth already. At which point the question came back to him, is the sky lit up as far as Hebron? And if it was, a year-old lamb was given a drink from a golden bowl. It was examined by torchlight. It was tied to the altar by its front and its back feet, and its face was turned to the west. The elders who carried the key gave an order for the temple gates to open, and then as silver trumpets blew to call the people to prayer, the priest upon whom the lot had fallen, sacrificed the Lamb of God. And whenever we know this, then the words of verses 5 and verse 6 mean so much more. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And every morning, God 
met his people at an altar in Jerusalem where the fires were kept burning. And as the writer sees these fires of sacrifice, he begins to sing a new song. And the cry of verse 1 has now become the song of verses 7 and 8, and it's the song of love and redemption. And he directs his song towards the whole nation, and he tells them all to sing. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. O Israel, he says, won't you sing? Because there is steadfast love and there is plentiful redemption. O Israel, hope in the Lord, because the fires are still burning on the altar. And however deep and however dark the circumstances of life, there is always forgiveness. And so we reach our last word, our last step. And it's the word all. Verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Every single sin can be forgiven. And we call it grace. And the writer of the psalm knew this because he had seen the fires burning on the altar in Jerusalem. And for him, that was a wonderful thing. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. And yet the people of Israel still had a problem. And so do we. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but God requires holy people. Forgiveness is a wonderful, wonderful thing, but God requires that we live holy lives. And so we need to turn to those verses in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. We're reading there again about the temple sacrifices and it's speaking of Jesus and it's comparing him with the priests in the temple. It says this, he, and it's talking about Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The problem, you see, was this. The priest who made the sacrifices in the temple was sinful himself. And so he needed the sacrifice as much as anybody else did. And those sacrifices were offered on a daily basis because the people just kept on sinning. The people weren't obedient. And no matter what they did, they simply didn't live the way that God wanted them to. And neither do we. God requires holy obedient people and it should strike fear into our hearts i don't know about you but i went back to work last monday after you know that year that teachers get off but last week wasn't an obedient week and here's the thing paul in romans tells us that even when we want to do the right thing we don't have the ability to do it and it makes no difference how much we pray and serve, and worship, or sacrifice our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We just don't live as God requires. We're just not holy enough. And if that wasn't bad enough, Isaiah comes along, and then Isaiah says, all those good things that you do, all your righteousness, it's like filthy rags. And that's the real problem. Forgiveness is wonderful. 
But the whole situation is crying out for someone who can live a holy and obedient life. The whole situation is crying out for someone who can defeat sin and take it away and take away its power and take away our guilt and make us holy and put us right. So we need to read from Hebrews chapter 7 again. This time it's verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And of course, it's talking about Jesus. And Jesus lived that holy and innocent and unstained life that God required. And he lived it in obedience to his heavenly Father, and he lived it for you, and he lived it for me. And in Jesus, every wrong step, every misplaced word, every broken promise, every darkness of heart, every sin is not only forgiven, but by grace and through faith, we are lifted up out of those depths and given a righteousness that we don't have, but that we need, and it's the very righteousness of God himself. And through faith, we find that in the eyes of our Heavenly Father, we are holy, innocent, and unstained as well, and accepted by him. Philippians chapter 3, and we are found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You ever find yourself in the depths of life? Look to Jesus. Do you need forgiveness? Do you ever think you can't be forgiven? Then look to Jesus. Do you ever worry that God just couldn't accept you? Then look to Jesus. Do you need to be holy? Then look to Jesus. Do you need assurance of your salvation? Then look away from yourself and look to Jesus. And know that by grace and through faith in Jesus, he has everything you need. And you are perfect in the eyes of your heavenly Father. And Jesus reigns from the cross. And he reigns from the empty grave. And he reigns as he shines his light into the darkest of hearts and he makes them clean. And he reigns as he unfolds his holiness into your life and mine. And as the world around us darkens, and the world is a dark place. As the world around us darkens, then sooner or later there will be a cry. There will be a cry from the depths of the human heart as people become tired of the darkness and tired of the confusion and tired of the pain. And so just as Israel was called to keep the fires burning on the altar, so you and I are called to know for ourselves and to keep the light and love of Jesus shining from our fellowships so that whenever those people cry, in the deep and dark places of the world, they will know that there is someone who will love them and forgive them and put them right and take them home. And so we finish with the appeal that 
the writer makes in verse 8. O Israel, he says, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Our Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the cross. And Father, we thank you for your words to us, for your kindness and your care. And Father, as we wait now around your word and at the foot of the cross, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us into our lives to make us alive to everything that you've done. Our Father, some of us need forgiveness. Would you take us to the rivers of your mercy and would you wash us clean? Father, some of us fear that you cannot or won't accept us. We know that we ought to be holy and yet we're not. We know, Father, that we could stand at the altar of forgiveness every day and we feel that we've wearied your love. But would you speak to our hearts and point us to Jesus? And as we see Jesus, may we see ourselves hidden under his wings and covered by his righteousness. Our Heavenly Father, send your spirit to us. May we know that we are held in your arms, holy, forgiven, righteous, and accepted by you. And may we never lose the wonder of your grace. May we know that you walk with us. And Father, we ask that you would feed us every day with the bread of life and with the royal wine of heaven. Amen.